Hey there, this is Jeff Grace. Welcome to Self Obsessed. This week I am speaking with Kate Flanders of the very popular blog, kateflanders.com. She also has a Wall Street Journal bestseller book. It's a memoir. It's called The Year of Less. I just finished reading it and I talked to her about it on the podcast. It's a memoir about her pursuit to buy no new consumer products for an entire year. It's a really interesting book. It goes into a lot of different areas and our conversation does as well. Uh, one area that we talk quite a bit about is the idea of uh, drinking and how it affects people. And for those of you that don't know, I once went on a one-year drinking sabbatical. So if that comes up in the podcast, uh, basically I took a year off from drinking, didn't have a drop for one year. I do drink again now. Um, but I sort of went through a kind of an exploration of my relationship with drinking, and it's something that we talk about a little bit in the podcast. And just wanted you to know where that's coming from. Uh, if you guys have missed a couple of the past episodes, uh, most recently, last week, I had on uh, GQ writer Rosecrans Baldwin. He's also an author. And he went through a deep dive of the various LA wellness cults and sort of got sucked into a self-help organization called MITT. And he went through a five-day seminar that was in incredibly intense and a really interesting read. Uh, listen to that podcast. There's a lot of good information in there. Uh, before that, I spoke with Rylan Aldrich about his experience doing the Tony Robbins four-day program. And in the weeks to come, I have my good friend Adam Adair on the show. He's going to talk about his experience of going through the Landmark four-day program and then how he became kind of a regular volunteer of that organization. It was something that I had not talked to him about before in our relationship. It became a little bit of a taboo subject. And uh, it was a really interesting conversation. So a lot of uh, a lot of four-day program talk these days, guys, and I'm sure uh, will illuminate quite a bit. I was hoping to find some deep, dark, conspiratorial secrets about these organizations, but so far I'm finding a little bit the opposite, that, that maybe these some of these things have uh, more benefit than harm, and whatever weirdness these organizations have about them is maybe somewhat more of a factor of their sort of sales structure than it is any kind of sinister stuff going on in the background. That's not to say that there aren't weird cults out there, sinister organizations. You should be on the lookout, be careful, know what you're getting into. But so far, not finding it as much as I thought. So anyways, I think this conversation with Kate, which has nothing to do with any self-help organizations, has more to do with her personal journey of anti-consumerism. It's a really good chat. I think you guys are going to dig it. And with no further ado, Kate Flanders. Hey, Kate, how are you doing? I'm so good. How are you? I'm very well. I just finished reading your book. I appreciate you joining me remotely here um, all the way from Canada. Canada. Uh, I'm glad to know that the broadband travels that far. Yes, I'm sitting in my igloo. Uh, I'm very cold right now, but everything seems to be working. Yeah, it's supposed to get up to, uh, it's supposed to get down to about 63 degrees tonight in LA. So we're a little concerned here. Um, <laughs> where, are you, where are you in Canada right now? So I'm just um, north of Vancouver. I'm actually right in between Vancouver and Whistler. Uh, so I am in the mountains. It does get cold here, but still not cold the way that sort of the stereotype uh, 
people have about Canada is. So like in the winter, it, it will sit at freezing, but it's not often below that. That's not so bad. Well, you're, you're a coastal city, kind of like Seattle. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we're all part of the Great Bear, or, oh my God, what is it even called? Great Bear Rainforest. Something like that. I, that's awful now that I can't remember that, but we are all part of the same ecosystem. So yes. You mean planet Earth? Is that what you're referring to? <laughs> the, the, the atmosphere and the... the, uh, the yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't I want to get technical. <laughs> no, well, I'm glad to know that we share an ecosystem. <laughs> I feel like I don't know if we do share an ecosystem. We're I think we're decidedly in a desert climate down here, but I think you guys, Seattle, Portland, I think you guys are all part of an ecosystem. Yeah, basically if it's raining in Portland or Seattle, it will come up to us like the next day. I'm sorry. It's I America just keeps dumping all its problems on Canada. So, <laughs> sorry about that. I forgive you. I forgive you as the entire country. <laughs> so I just uh, finished reading your book, The Year of Less, a Wall Street Journal bestseller. It says on your website here. <laughs> I hope that I, I, I haven't I haven't validated that claim, but I assume it's true. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was uh, such an interesting read. Um, it's really, you know, I can I'll let you kind of summarize it. But I mean, from from my point of view, it was sort of a it's a little bit of a, your autobiography from from a challenging couple of years you had. But you kind of had set out. You have a, a blog which is kateflanders.com or is there a different, is it under a different name? No, nope, just kateflanders.com. And you have since stopped blogging, which we'll talk about. I have, yeah. Uh, maybe because you're now just a full-blown author. I don't know, but we'll get into that. But the year of less was about your attempt to sort of reduce all of your possessions. You got rid of something like 65% of all, everything you owned, mm -hmm. maybe more. More, yeah. <laughs> and more still. <laughs> And then you put yourself on a very strict, basically, shopping ban, uh, which basically all you were allowed to buy were, you know, essentials like, you know, food, groceries, you know, toilet paper, things of that nature. But you basically cut yourself all from but a few small things that you at the beginning, you knew you needed to get a new mattress and like one dress for a whole year of weddings and a couple other items. But you basically end up saving almost about half your income for the, for the entire year. Isn't that, is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you basically just summed up the whole book. No, <laughs> but yeah. So you don't really need to read it. No, no. It, we're all done here. <laughs> but, well, that's yeah. your book is your book is sort of a bait and switch because you, you come in for the, oh, I'm going to become a, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, read about this minimalist lifestyle. And then I come out on the other end going, wow, I think I just went on a harrowing journey with a, you know, 20 something young lady and her difficult couple of years, you know, overcoming. Uh, battle with alcohol, your parents getting divorced, job, career change, moving cities. Uh, I think for anyone that's, you know, having gone through that kind of in my mid 20s, I went through it. My parents got divorced in my mid 20s. Uh, I am someone that's had battles with alcohol. I actually took a one year sabbatical from drinking. Um, I've definitely had my share of career changes. I, you know, left advertising and when I turned 32 to, to move to LA and uh, try, try to pursue entertainment. I should probably say I am pursuing entertainment. Um, I shouldn't say try, right? That's it always sounds like you're you're not totally convinced of it. So I relate it to so much in your book, and uh, it's a really excellent read. You're you're a great writer, but I, I would love to know a little bit first. How, how did you get into blogging? Which was that your gateway into becoming a full blown you know author? I mean, I, I guess the end result is that. Yes, like I don't think I ever would have gotten a book deal if I hadn't had the blog, but 
I also never started blogging thinking anyone was going to read it, um, which is so different from how blogging sort of seems to be now. Like it's such a business now. Um, people start blogs like to make money, to get book deals, to it's sort of just like what you said, actually, like it, it is like the gateway to something else. Um, I started my blog in 2010 for the first time because I was close to being maxed out with a bunch of consumer debt. And I had all you, you were in about $30,000 worth of debt in the book, at least. Is that, is that the same period of time? Yeah. Well, and actually, the way I have to explain this it, it is sort of confusing, but also like that's real life. Like real life isn't linear and works perfectly all the time and always goes up like it's just all like that so when I first started the blog it was October of 2010 and I had about $24,000 of debt at that time but I also had all these feelings like you know I knew that my financial situation was bad and that I wanted to get better with my money so I started the blog um, I wrote anonymously like I didn't want anyone in my real life to know anything about it um, right. I didn't. I didn't want anyone to find out I had debt. Um, and I basically would just do this thing where I would share a weekly spending report every Sunday, where it just said like what I spent every single day that week and on what. Um, kind of like I. I always and were like, you trying to limit what you're buying at this point, or I mean, I imagine once you commit to an exercise like that, you become very conscious about what you're going to have to report at the end of the week. Yeah. And that's all that was happening. There wasn't really this thought that um, I had to restrict myself at first. I was just like, I need to understand where my money is going. Because I, I just had this idea, like, someday I should probably budget. I didn't really know what that meant. I had never budgeted before in my life. Um, but I was like, I do need to see where things are going. And so I'm like, I will track my spending, and then I'll track my debt repayment. And I did that for something like four or five months. And then I realized that I actually wasn't quite ready to get serious about my money. And I ended up deleting the blog and going basically on this bender for a couple of months. I spent and drank away all the rest of my savings and then came back in June of 2011 being like, okay, guys, I'm back. But, but like, guys being probably- and, and the original blog was called Blonde on a Budget. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I came back, yeah, to my like, maybe handful of readers who had read the early stuff. And I was like, hey, I'm back. I'm completely maxed out. Now I have $30,000 of debt. And I have no choice to but to start taking this seriously now. You sort of hit rock bottom, as they would say in an AA meeting. Yeah, I mean, I think that everyone's rock bottom looks different. But financially, for me, I had $100 left in my checking account and $100 left on one of my credit cards. So I had no choice but to start paying off my debt, like to start start looking at where numbers were actually going and do something better because what I had been doing was not working. So yeah, that was my rock bottom. And, and then the other thing is at the same time, I was also the heaviest I'd ever weighed and um, I was drinking the most I had or had in a while. So all around, like it just wasn't really a great time. And, and what age was were you at at this at this point in your life? I was twenty five, just about to turn twenty six. Because at twenty five, it's really hard to tell too what's a drinking problem and what is just garden variety twenty five year old weekend and weekday binge drinking. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I mean, 
Did you go through that? Because I mean, that's something that I went through even later in life, sort of going, hmm, maybe Tuesday nights are not the night you have your eighth drink. Yeah. And, you know, I remember, I think I was probably, I don't know, 19 or 21 the first time that I was like, I need to drink less or had thoughts of like, I'm going to stop drinking one day. Um, I always remember having that thought, like one day I will not drink. And the reason I think I had that thought was because my my dad got sober when I was 10. So I grew up in a house where my parents didn't drink. There was no, like when I was a teenager and I was drinking, there was no alcohol in the house except the stuff I was bringing in. So right. I have this example of, okay, like as an adult, you don't have to drink to have a good time. Like my dad is probably one of the funniest people I know and doesn't doesn't take himself seriously and just, you know, like he's just this hilarious guy. And so I knew like, okay, one day I'll probably be like that. But yeah, I mean, when I was, like I said, I think probably between 19 and 21, I have a few very specific examples of parties I went to and, you know, blacked out, um, which was very normal for me anyways, unfortunately. I think that that, that is sort of, how I would define a drinking problem because it's a lot of people do just go for drinks, but they don't really black out. And I, I also, I mean, I've actually, I mean, I have sort of a, you know, Irish Catholic background in the drinking department. And, um, I, you know, it's funny, I can drink the same amount as my friends. You know, if we all went out for a big night in like Las Vegas mm-hmm. and let's say everyone has like six to seven, eight drinks over the course of a long night, I will black out. My friends will not. And so I don't know if that that blacking out is a now maybe it's just I'm drinking more than I think they are. Or is it something to do with the, you know, is it is it something to do with having a bit of an alcoholic gene or yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you feel like you were drinking way more than your friends and blacking out? Do you think yes. that I mean, because I yes, <laughs> I did. The answer is just like, yes, although like not always more than everybody. But I also think that this is true is that when you like to drink pretty heavily, you end up hanging out with people who will drink closer to your rate. Like you don't want to hang out with the people who are only having one or two glasses because that's not what you're going to do. And that was the other thing for me is that where I knew it was a problem is I never knew how to have one or two. And actually, if that was the option, I actually wasn't interested. Like if someone said like, let's have a drink with dinner, I was like, no thanks. Because unless I was going to have like six glasses of wine, I didn't want any glasses of wine. I don't know how that makes sense. Like I still haven't really processed why that seemed to be true. Um, but I wouldn't. I just, it was either all or nothing. I have a friend or two who said the exact same thing, you know, who kind of admittedly, I, I mean, the m- number of people, I I think that's very true that if you are someone that enjoys drinking and you're an extrovert and you're social, you end up gravitating to other people that party the same way you do. But I mean, even amongst my peer group, even from going from high school to college to now, I mean, I, I would have, I probably have a high percentage of friends who are kind of actively concerned about their drinking and how, how much they're drinking. And that can range from, you know, someone who's a mother who's having like a third glass of wine every night and feeling just bad about that. Or, you know, people that are, you know, legitimately have maybe, you know, more serious drinking problems. I mean, I think the commonality, and I don't know if this is your observation. I mean, it sounds like you, you at some point you got a little heavier in the drinking, but almost, most of the people I know that maybe have a drinking problem, it's not like they're, they, they have a bottle of vodka in their desk drawer and are pulling it out during the workday. It's more of a social drinking kind of thing because 
but but in a lot, place like Los Angeles and maybe Vancouver's the same way, uh, you know, you could find someone every night of the week to go out with. Um, I think that's true most places. Also, because the other thing I would say, it's like more of a broader thought on that line, is that I think if you want to do anything, you can find people who want to do it with you. So if you, right, like if you're like, I'm going to skip the gym and go eat pizza, like, you know, exactly who you can call to do that with. Um, and it's a the same thing, just different substance, like just you're just consuming something different. But I think anything we want to do, we can probably find people for both good and, and bad or not bad, but just like problematic. But yeah, I would say that I relate, I relate to that also, because I think there were periods of time where I was doing heavier drinking, but overall it really just was that i i could go like a month or two months without drinking or without drinking much but when i decided to drink i always drank a lot and yeah that's just it, it's different from kind of just the maybe only having an extra glass or two here and there but i think where we all end up creating change is when whenever we have enough of those feelings in ourselves, like, okay, what I'm doing isn't working for me anymore. And that's going to look different for everybody. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I really relate it to the book where you, there's a chapter where you're, you talk about how this is bad, but I, I needed to get worse. Like you, you, you had that, you know, self-talk to yourself of like, all right, I'm eating too much, but somewhere in the future, I will eat less and I'm drinking too much, but somewhere down the road, I'll, you know, it's just sort of like, Somewhere in the future, my magical future self will tell me when it's time to stop. And uh, you know, I, I was I wrote down a note here in my when I was reading your books, just saying it's it's all about the pursuit of short term pleasure over long term happiness. It, it yeah. is really where I saw for you. It was the eating, the shopping, the the, the uh, alcohol. For me, it's the same thing. Like you know, I I'm like one of those people that battled with alcohol all my life. I mean, not any again. Like if you asked most of my friends, it's like you're not an alcoholic. But it doesn't make me, it doesn't always make me feel happy. So like for me, it's just, it's something I don't have as much of a handle on as I would like. I took a full year off from drinking once and it was an amazing experience. But then coming back to drinking, I think if you have a problem with drinking, it's, it's sort of in the gene somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, I actually would like, if you told me I could take a pill tomorrow and it would, it was like, you'll be forever now the person who has two drinks and that's all you'll ever want. I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more the person that once I have that second drink, I'm like, let's have the third one and the fourth one. And and like time starts to oh, yeah. feel like, you know, it's just, you don't, I, I would say most nights I've gone out drinking and wake up the next morning feeling terrible. I never thought during the drinking period, like, oh, I am so excited to get drunk or I really want to get hammered. In fact, it's just the opposite. I want to, I just think I'm, you know, I almost feel like I'm just drinking glasses of water and I, and that drinking is, it's very hard to explain, but it's for me, it's almost as if, um, I'm just drinking something just to have something in my hand here. But obviously the, the psychological relationship is much deeper than that. And I'm not someone who identifies as particularly shy. I feel like I'm pretty extroverted. But the year I took off from drinking, I realized, oh, wow, that first 15 minutes, 20 minutes when you walk into a party and you don't know anybody, God, yeah. is there a strong pull to be like, get me a fucking drink? <laughs> or does that like, get me out of here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get me out of here. You know, or the not- you walk into a wedding, you know, it's like, where oh, is the f- bar? Weddings are honestly the worst when you're sober. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I went to four weddings the year I was uh, didn't drink. Wow. I went to multiple industry events. and it, But the thing is, it's after 15, 20 minutes, you go, oh, I'm going to be fine. 
I mean, sometimes it actually does feel good to have like a, a salsa water in your hand or uh, whatever. But um, no, I mean, I, I guess the alcohol stuff really, I really relate it to because I've, I've talked to myself, you know, talked to myself, uh, you know, I've talked to friends about, you know, I was like, I, I had a lot of good things happen to me in the year I didn't drink. Nothing terrible has happened to me in the years since, but I just felt generally less productive. I gained probably 16, 17 pounds back. Um, just things of that nature that you go like, I, I know my better self is the non-drinking self, but there's a lot you have to to sacrifice. I mean, I when you talked about the peer pressure from your friends, and now I don't think any of your friends or my friends would think that they are peer pressuring somebody. Uh, but the like the for me, it was always, should we get a, a bottle of wine for the table? And then you'd have to be like, um, I think I'm just going to, I think I'm just going to have, I, I'm okay. And then it's, why aren't you drinking? And, the, and it's just, and that was the number one thing that I just like, that conversation over and over and over again became so exhausting. I was actually going to ask, like, this is not my podcast, but I was going to ask if sort of that exactly ever happened to you or how you felt or just like overall, maybe what the biggest challenges and like benefits of not drinking. And the only reason I hope it's okay if I'm asking you is because no, I'm, 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 I'm an open book. Yeah, like, I just don't think that enough people are willing to talk about it. It's like, it's so much easier to talk about letting go of some other stuff. Like people talk about decluttering. Yeah, that's like an easy topic. Like sometimes it's not for people, but you know what I mean? Like that's like an easy topic, but to talk about not drinking. Um, yeah, just it, it's not like a lot of people are not comfortable with it. And so I love that you're like open and have experimented. I think like in general too, that's how I live my life. Other than drinking, drinking for me is like the one that's like a hard no forever. But for everything else, I'm like- How long have you been sober now? Um, it'll be six years in December. That's crazy. That's great. Yeah. And um, and it does get easier, I will say, but like you still have, have moments that come up, not where I want to drink anymore. Like that hasn't happened in a long time, like those feelings, but- you still have moments where you're annoyed by people's comments or stuff. So I'm just, I'm just curious, like what, what came up for you the most? Well, I'm actually, it's at some point, if I could never find the time, I want to write a book about it. And I even thought about doing a blog about it or something, you know, some, some way to talk about it because, well, so this, I mean, if you really want to hear like the kind of uh, the truncated version is I broke off an engagement from a girl I had been dating for about four to five years um, that we were living together and we were, you know, maybe a, a couple months before we were supposed to get married, we broke off the engagement. I already actually had a bachelor party and she was supposed to be the lead actress in the film I was about to shoot. Um, and when we broke up, I just felt this strong. I remember, oh no, it was, we went to relationship counseling and it wasn't like either of us were drinking that much, but a lot of our stories to the relationship counselor was like, I had a, I had my second glass of wine and then we had a fight, you know, and she, and then she was like, Maybe just both of you cut out the drinking uh, while you're going through this period of uh, of trying to figure out what's going on with your relationship. And I, I felt like, I, and I think at about a month and a half in, we realized it wasn't just the drinking that we weren't quite right for each other. And we had a you know a pretty amicable split as much as you can, you know, when you've been you know, together that long. Um, and I I just had this instinct of like I think I need to continue not drinking, and I just felt. I was like, I need to go a year. I just, I don't know why. Because mm -hmm. I'd done the one month off, two month off thing. But I always feel like the first two weeks of like, when you take a month off, the first two weeks, it's all about, uh, oh my God, this is hard. And then you have like four days of, oh, this is kind of nice. And then you have like 10 days of anticipating what you're going to do when you can mm -hmm. drink again. And I just felt like if I cleared the decks for a year, I could go through every experience, a holiday, Thanksgiving, 
all you know, name you know, Fourth of July, all all those things that just feel like how could I ever get through? Because whenever I've stopped drinking in the past, it's always been like I found that like one thirty day stretch where it somehow was absent of a holiday, a wedding, an event. You know, because like, as if it would just be impossible to make it through those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I guess if you're, to answer your question about like for me in that year off, it was the the biggest. I mean, people were very supportive on one level, you know, like and and a lot of people came out of the closet of sort of saying like, yeah, I've actually wanted to do this for a long time, or uh, you know, you know, I have this problem with drinking or what have you. But then it's also a double edged sword because your friends would all ask you to come out to to drink or to, you know, to go out to dinner. And then all of a sudden they would ask you those questions. And then you were sort of the buzzkill that sort of destroyed the fun for everybody at dinner. Cause it was like, I always think of the Debbie Downer sketch from SNL where, <laughs> you know, you know, everyone's like, happy birthday. And like, Jeff, well, why aren't you drinking? And you're like, well, actually I just broke off my engagement and I'm just going to live a monastic life now. And I feel bad for all of you. No, I mean, it just, it be, because people feel judged, obviously. And, and yeah. I think most of us all realize that, like, we have a bit of a, uh, the, the relationship with alcohol is unlike anything else I think that most Americans have, right? It's, how often do you hear people say something like, I'm going to, I'm going to go on that, the holistic diet, but I'm not going to cut out drinking. It, it becomes this different category. So I don't know. I mean, is that kind of, is any of that gel with your experience? Oh, yeah. And I mean, Certainly the part of people feeling judged, which I have just come to learn, like the more I change my life, it seems based on some reactions, not even the majority, but some people's reactions, it's like anytime you change your life, it it seems like there's at least one person who does feel like you, by you changing your life, you're somehow commenting on like them not changing their life. Or like you're you're making a comment somehow on decisions that they're making, choices they're making. That came a, up a lot with drinking. And again, not with everyone, but unfortunately a lot with coworkers, which I think makes sense because you sort of have like a surface level friendship with them. There's not like there's not as many people at work who you are building deep relationships with. Like maybe there's one or two, but the majority of them are more surface level friendships. So they don't really get you or get exactly why you might be doing something. And also because you're probably not revealing every single piece of information. Right. I mean, let's go out for a happy hour is an easy thing for a couple of people to do after work. But if you're the person that doesn't do it, I I found that I ended up on a lot of, you know, if someone had a birthday party, I'd still make the list. But there was like, hey, we're all meeting up at the bar for a Friday night meetup. I, I, definitely found that I fell off that list when you're not drinking because mm-hmm. people feel like maybe they feel like for some reason, like, well, I wouldn't want to ask him to come drink. You know, I wouldn't want to ask him to come to a bar. And I, I was very much the person who was like, I'm going to be in bars. I'm going to, I'm not going to avoid alcohol. In fact, I need to, if this is going to work, I need to like not, you know, drastically change my, my social life, which is not something I'd recommend for someone that's having really hardcore alcohol problems. I think for some of those people, you do need to like really distance yourself from, places that will trigger you or cue you to want to drink. But for me, it was like, I was like, I felt like I had to live a fully social life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but, but people don't always want to hang out with someone that's not drinking. Yes, this is also true. And for me, what I will say, cause I can't speak to everyone, but I think being a woman in your mid twenties, it's gotten 
easier as I've gotten older, but being in your mid 20s, late 20s, and you quit drinking when you're single, that makes dating really weird. And not only weird the way you might be thinking, but weird because even just like when a guy would say, do you want to meet up for drinks? Sometimes I would say like, yes, like I'm, I'm totally fine to go to bars and pubs and just not have alcohol. But either at that moment, I'm saying, like either at the bar, I'm saying I don't drink or even before, and I suggest we do coffee or go for a walk or do something else. At some point, the discussion comes up pretty quickly that drinking's just like not something I do. And there's like a very weird mix of reactions. When I was younger, it was harder. I found guys were not that understanding. I think we're just more also in their phase of like, well, drinking is fun. Like, you don't do fun things. <laughs> when- oh, I, I'll admit that in my mid 20s, if someone didn't want to drink, I almost was upset with them. Because mm-hmm. that was how much I it was a part of my identity. And in, in my I mean, there's no way I would have dated a girl who was a sober girl in my mid 20s. It just would seem completely impossible. Totally. Because I was steeped in this whole kind of post collegiate binge drinking lifestyle. Yeah, and I think it's it is so common. So yeah, it made it really difficult. Something that was frustrating was that I had a couple of sober guy friends who seemed to have no problem finding girls who were fine with them not drinking. But then the opposite seemed to be true, like being the girl who doesn't drink, a lot of guys seem to have an issue with it. And I'm not sure, like part of me is like I don't I don't even have a theory for it. Maybe it's not true. Maybe that's so circumstantial and was No, it's 100% true because I, okay. I I I I was now single for the first time in four and a half years and one massive change in that four and a half years was that Tinder, Bumble. Mm. There was all these dating apps that didn't exist when I was previously single. I did sort of the same thing as I did not want to I didn't want to kill my chances of finding love, if you will. <laughs> so I would I, I would say like, yeah, let's meet at the bar. And then when we got to the bar, I'd be like, I'll get a ginger beer and she'll have a, what do you want? And they'd be like, oh, like everyone would be like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not drinking right now. And if, and also for me, the reason I was not going to drink for years, it felt like I'm just a person doing an experiment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I I think to be the person that's like, I'm never drinking again felt a little too intense for me to have to say out loud or for me to maybe even like, I don't think I could have gone a year if I if I had to tell myself I was going to go forever. Mm-hmm. But I went on a lot of dates where I went on two dates where the girl ended the date halfway through because she thought it was misleading that I didn't tell her that I didn't drink. What? Yeah, I had one girl walked out of a restaurant. We sit down in an Italian restaurant here in Silver Lake. And... um this was definitely not going to be a match anyways, but because <laughs> it was just a personality problem from the beginning. But so at the beginning, and she's like, um, I'm like, what would you want? You want a glass of wine or something? And she's like, yeah, I'll do a glass of red wine. And, and you know, how about you, sir? I'm like, um, I'll just do a glass of salsa water. And she's like, whoa. What? And she got immediately like, what's that about? You're not going to have a glass of wine? I'm like, oh, I'm not drinking this year. She's like, what do you mean by that? And like she got – so then she was cool for it for like 10 minutes. And then – she went to the bathroom and came back and she's like, you know, I just don't feel comfortable being on a date with someone that's not going to drink. So I'm just going to go home. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And then, uh, yeah, another girl just, uh, we met at a Mexican restaurant, you know, we, and uh, just the fact that I wasn't drinking, she's like, you really need, she was like, you really need to tell people that before you meet them out. Cause it's really uncomfortable to have to be on, be on a, drink, a date with someone that's not going to drink. Mm. I was like, okay. But, but I will say generally speaking that I went on a whole year of, 
Uh, my friends will report I went on a lot of dates in that year I wasn't drinking. And I think it was a great, good experience because you, you A, make much deeper connections with people. You you are much more aware of like, <laughs> how much do I really like this person? Uh-huh. You, you probably have a lot less random hookups that you know, I think yeah. I know, which could be fun in your 20s. But when you get to be 30, it's just like not worth the effort and the baggage. and. <laughs> Uh, that's very real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. not saying I was t- completely devoid of that, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it gets more complicated. It feels as you get older. So. Um, a lot of people seem super interesting after four drinks that would not sober. So, yes, yes. Okay. But I will say actually almost, I don't know if it's like affirming or like feel <laughs> oddly, it like feels good to know that that you did have the same experience as me in that actually some women weren't comfortable with it because I was like, is this some weird bias thing where just guys don't like if girls don't drink, but actually it's interesting to know that there was the opposite, not affirming. And because it's probably um, says something maybe about their drinking tendencies. So that's not a positive. This is taking a weird turn. Well, no, I mean, I, I, well, what I would say is I think that you would not be wrong to say that guys, generally speaking, would be less accepting of that. Because what I I also, I was dating in my, you know, I I think I just turned 40. So, you you know, a a guy who doesn't drink at 40 is is not alarm bells for a girl. It's like, oh, it's actually like, oh, here's a stable, one of the few stable people left. Or if they don't think that, because I mean, honestly, there is this thing too. I recently gave up drinking. That's like kind of an alarm bell, right? <laughs> you know, like, because yeah. those people usually go back to drinking, and um, you know, if you if you you know, it's like, hey, I uh, used to be a heroin addict, but I've been sober for three weeks. You know, you'd be like, oh, maybe this is not the, because uh, I mean, and we you talked about AA in your book, which we could talk about that too, because I think we have the exact same observations about AA. I actually probably had a, I I kind of went down, I I fully invested in the whole thing. I was like, I'm gonna go to AA meetings. I'm gonna like really learn about myself. And how did you, but, uh, what, what did you feel there? Uh, this is becoming a podcast about me, which is uh, not what I intended here, <laughs> but. No, you can um, stop, but I'm like, people, again, just don't talk about this. So I can't help but ask. Well, for my, for me, I still am good friends with the person that was my sponsor. I kind of told him like, hey, I'm going to do this for a year. This is kind of what I feel like I want to do. And he was cool with that. And I actually think AA is should be studied as one of the most perfectly organized institutions in terms of uh, avoiding corruption. It's sort of structurally designed to never have money involved. Mm. Um, there's a lot of really good things about it. I think that your observations about the religious element, which in LA, they've they've gotten, they've deprogrammed all the religion out of it. It's like literally the first thing they say in every meeting. Oh, so I can go to LA in LA and I would be fine. <laughs> you would probably, yeah, if you went to a meeting in LA, you would not, be weirded out. I'm I'm like a devout uh I'm like a pretty anti-religious person. Yeah, I do. Um I might I might not I, it doesn't mean I don't believe that there could be a god. I just don't believe any of the current books about it seem to be that convincing. So yeah, when you you know when they say god, I think that's a higher force. You know, you have to do a little bit of that substitution. The the challenge I I had at least is that in every AA meeting I went to and I don't think I'm just being uh you know maybe everyone thinks like they're the normal one, but I just felt like everyone else's stories were so much more severe than mine. And then I would be like, yeah, well, I just kind of want to like lose some weight. And I definitely, I mean, but like, you know, I've had blackouts. I mean, it wasn't like I was, I definitely related to every story. Even the people like that lost their families and, mm-hmm. or, you know, or killed someone in a drunk driving accident. I mean, but the the pattern of their drinking was so familiar to me. 
the progressive nature of the drinking um, was so familiar to me. And I think it was very important to do, but as a lifestyle, I don't know if it was going to help me. Um, it felt like I was going to now be identified as that as my identity, is that I'm an alcoholic. And that to me, I think would be, you know, I think would actually be more likely to make me drink again. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I saw three or four people that literally came in the doors shaking and sweating. Mm. And a year later, their lives had been completely changed. And I, I don't, uh, at, and at that time, I was going through AA. There was a lot of people, there was a lot of, uh, criticism of AA by Slate or Salon, one of those two publications about how there's no scientific backing for this organization, but um, it seems to be the, the 12 step, step program seems to be the default choice of, uh, of treatment, but, but there's not really a lot of science by how this was all started. It was some, some dude making it up, you know, however many years ago. Right. But then it's like, is there science behind religion? Like that would just be my argument for Slate or whoever was saying that, you know what I mean? Like, it's- well, I don't know if they, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that thought was: is there this woman was actually pushing a pill called? Um, oh my god, I'm gonna screw it up, but it's a pill they use for heroin treatment. Okay, and I'm and I actually took it upon reading this article. It's basically blocks your pleasure receptors. I can't believe I took this thing, uh, and I will I will look it up and put it in the show notes here. <laughs> um, but it's basically a pill that you take that turns off your reward center or your pleasure center. So that if you, like, let's say you take it an hour before you start drinking, and there's a whole group of people out there that do this. I should have looked it up before I started, but um, you take a pill an hour before you start drinking, and then once you start drinking, you will not feel that pull towards, like, drinks three, four, and five. You might have a glass of wine, but -hmm. number two is going to go down kind of like how maybe a second giant glass of grapefruit juice would go down. Like, you're just sort of like, oh, this is kind of sugar. It's pretty remarkable, but... A lot of people have side effects on it, and which I did too, like splitting headaches and wow. really bad hangovers, even after like one or two drinks of, of – so anyways, that was the movement going on. It's like this is more of a, a – a, this could be solved through pharmaceuticals and through – I mean, I, I don't think I don't think they were necessarily tearing down AA. It was just oh. like, sort of questioning like how did this become our default treatment when there's no science behind it? And can we improve upon this system? And yeah, so, but the people at AA were highly defensive because I mean, they, I mean, most people at AA, this is like the structure they live by and it's working. And also just from the community aspect of it too, right? Like to know that you're not alone and that even if you don't see the same people at every meeting or even ever again, like to sit in a room with other people and have everyone be comfortable saying, yeah, um, I'm similar to you, even if it's different. Like I, there's something about us that is similar and just to know that you're not alone. So I do appreciate that. I think your comment too about actually um, not wanting to sort of label yourself as an alcoholic. I, I feel the same. And actually. Um, Cause you don't go, th- you don't, you are not currently going through AA or, or never have. Correct? I never have. No, it is still interesting. Like almost six years in now, I would say that I'm still, figuring out who I am as like a person who doesn't drink in a in like a good way in like I'm constantly kind of discovering what I actually like you know what things actually bring me joy who I actually want to spend time with what kind of like what is spending time with people that in a way that feels good to me actually look like it's it is really interesting so I'm I'm still always learning but no I and I don't really identify as an alcoholic. Like medically speaking, if we went by the definitions, 100%, I was an alcoholic. 
I would say most, not not everyone, but most social drinkers, uh, if you applied like the medical definition, we all probably would come up as that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's challenging. I mean, I, I feel like AA, in AA, they would say, if you feel like alcohol is a problem for you, it's that's all you need to really know. Yes. And my, I would say of everything I've learned about AA, um, or the most of the stuff that I know has come from my dad. So like I said, my dad got sober when I was 10. He went to rehab and then he did like a full year of AA, which is I think what you're, they suggest you do, like just for kind of support in your first year. Yeah, that's why my sponsor was so comfortable with me saying, he's like, if you can make it a year without drinking, I'm not going to begrudge you if you go back to drinking. Okay. And he he held up his end of the bargain. Yeah. So, and that's actually, that's actually also nice to hear because I think some of my thoughts around AA too were, you know, if I stopped going to meetings, am I going to have someone who's like breathing down my neck? Like, why aren't you at meetings or something like that? And, and again, isn't it funny how like some of the reasons we don't do things is just because of the stories we tell ourselves. Like, I don't even know if that would have been true. <laughs> yeah. I, I had the same. Well, I remember having like, so they, in an AA meeting, they, they, you, there's sometimes they'll be like, do you want to speak this week or whatever? And you kind of tell your like longer version of a story, but most meetings you'll talk for like a minute or two about mm-hmm. what your life, what's going on with your life or what have you. But I remember my first AA meeting, I felt like, and I went, it's like literally there's an AA meeting right down the stairs for me in Silver Lake here. It's at a uh, place called Tropical. And um, so I remember wa- that first meeting I walked into, if I had to like, describe the room i would have described like a room with sand on the floors and people just sitting in on the floor like i i feel like i was walking into a junkie den and then like i remember saying like a month later i was like this room's actually really pretty there's like lots of like beautiful like light fixtures but i just was like i felt like i was walking into like a pit of despair and i felt like i felt like oh i'm one of the i'm one of the fucked up ones i guess and it's i think there's a lot of uh shame associated with it maybe i actually think you you might really enjoy i think that like you can go to an AA meeting and literally never have a sponsor you could never you can you can choose never to even speak i mean so you can really like explore it without ever having to be it's not like a cult that you're going to be abducted into it's nothing like that (laughs) i've talked to plenty of people that are have been abducted by cults but that's not yeah (laughs) this is not one of them um what i will say to you like something i learned about my dad in just watching him and sort of watching the way he talked about his sobriety is that, you know, he's been sober for over 20 years at this point, like 23 years or something. And he just, for starters, never talks about it, like unless people bring it up. And he was like, you know, I, number one with sobriety, you have to get sober for yourself, not for anyone else in your life. That's just like a tip that I will always share. Like that's his experience, but I will always share that with people. But two, that he's like, I don't want to go to AA forever because then I just feel like I'm constantly reliving the fact that this was an issue for me. He's like, it's not anymore. Yes, I know I'm someone who, like, he he's similar to me in that, like, he would probably binge on other things if that, if life was taking him down a certain path or something. Like, things like being, like, chocolate or, like, sugar. Um, but he's like, I, I know that I'm never going to go back to drinking. So I also know that AA is not the place. Like, I don't want to keep talking about my old life. I just want to live my new life. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think the reason that AA tends to be, you know, suspicious or skeptical of people like that is because they have, because for the real, like, 
hardcore alcoholics, they probably do need to go every you know every day for the rest of their lives for some of the really like top one percenters. Mm-hmm. Because for so, because I, I think what happens is once you drift off of AA, then maybe it could be two, three years later, you go, man, I can, I could probably, you know, what? I think I could have a glass of wine now, and then they're back in, you know, because they don't, they're not reminding themselves of all the shit they went through um, mm-hmm. when they were drinking, and that's why a lot of people do. Like, I mean, I, I had this kind of similar battle with smoking cigarettes. I, I quit smoking for eight years, and then one day I was like, you know, I probably could just have a drag now and again. And then I did that for about six months. Then I was doing the, like the one one cigarette at a party per night. And then, you know, after a year, you're like back to a pack a week, pack of, you know two packs a week. And you know, it's like, wow, how did that just happen? Um, but I think like you know, if your dad's been sober for that long, I mean, I think if he doesn't feel, I mean, I think the reason that they will be like, no, 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 you have to go all the time, is just because they're so afraid that people are going to get unmoored. But yeah. there's a lot of people out there that I don't think need AA or. Or that AA would actually be more likely to be a disincentive to not drink than an incentive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. But yeah. No. But I mean, it's definitely something I've, you know, I've definitely thought about going for another, you know, going back to a full year of not drinking again. Because I just think it's a good way to kind of clear. It. I think it gets you in touch with uh, what I have noticed, and maybe you have noticed this too still, the to not drink is the odd man out. You would think that, oh, drinking is the, is the abnormal activity and that not drinking would be the baseline, you're a normal person. But I think in at least American society, to be a non-drinker is something that you have to like almost raise your hand and, and <laughs> point out to a group of people like, hey, I'm I'm the different one here. I'm, you know, it's, it's odd that our natural state is obviously not drinking alcohol, but to say that you don't drink is sort of like having, it sort of makes you the abnormal person in a group of 20 people. Oh, it it definitely does when like sort of opting out of anything. So even things like the shopping ban, like I was something I was so naive about that year was just like, I walk into it being like, again, no idea why I picked a year, just a random thought. (laughs) Here's a challenge I can do. But uh, I was so naive when I walked into it because my first, or like I just never thought that anyone would care. I never thought anyone would care that I'm not buying things. And actually what I realized pretty quickly is that shopping and just talking about buying things or sharing, like telling where you bought something or what's on sale right now, or some stores going out of business or whatever, like it's actually really normal and comes up in conversation all the time. So again, like when you're the one person who's not paying anything, you also feel like the odd one out. Oh, I mean, the shopping is a, I have a few people in my family that you would be, you know, the shopaholic thing or the, you know, consumerism, you know, addiction is a hundred percent happening. And I I was surprised to hear that people would be so upset with you to be like, wait, you're not going to go shopping. You're not going to buy new clothes at Urban Outfitters with me. You know, (laughs) I was surprised to know that that's going on there too. I mean, the reality is we're, you know, we're, if it's not clear from America, the last couple, you know, last two years, we're tribal culture. Mm -hmm. And whenever someone isn't doing the behavior of the group, we're sort of wired to point that out, you know, that, that makes you different than the group. So then therefore maybe it's a tribal instinct of maybe we should reject that person from the group so that the rest of us can survive. I don't know what it, what causes it, Yeah, but it's crazy to think that like you're happier than you've ever been, but everyone else kind of wants to call you out for why you, why do you, you know, why do you have to do that? Well, and I'm, I'm not going to remember the 
um, guy's name who first wrote about this, but I heard um, in September, I heard Elizabeth Gilbert speak about it, but it is actually just called tribal shaming. Like when you decide to leave the tribe and the tribe just being like, you know, as simple as something as I'm part of this group that even if it's not, we don't shop together, even if we don't go out together, as soon as you're the one person who's like, oh, I don't do a thing that's pretty normally done within our group. Yeah, that that it is that it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, like there is that sort of attack of just a bunch of questions and like, what are you doing? And are you judging us now? Because we do still do the thing. Yeah. And I don't want listeners at home. I mean, I, I bet you that, you know, I even will challenge the listeners at home to just question whether or not you're annoyed by us talking about not drinking or not, not, uh, not shopping. Right. Because it's, I mean, that would be, I would, I would be sympathetic to that because it's, it's like if, I listen to a lot of these self-help podcasts about different things and people that budget or people that do this. And, and there's a bit of me that's like, fuck you. <laughs> you know, like I, you know, how dare you go on a podcast and talk about how you're living life better than everyone else. I think what makes your book so good though, is that you come at it from such a place of, of weakness, right? You know, you're coming at it from like, here's me warts and all. And I think that's what makes your book very relatable and why I'd recommend it to people because the uh, what's the other book? And I never remember. I never say the author's name correctly. But the life changing magic of tidying up, mm-hmm. which is an excellent book, that feels like a book coming from the perspective of like a perfect human being, which makes it to me a little unrelatable. You know, when have you read that book at all? Uh, I have. I mean, I definitely remember sort of skimming it because also at the po- at that point, like I had already decluttered. Um, Right, so, you don't need to read another decluttering book. I'm like, I kind of looked around my place being like, you know, everything, like I've done all this. <laughs> and uh, the only thing I'm not going to do is like fold my socks a certain way because they've done their job. I or, literally was about to say the socks thing. She's like, <laughs> roll each sock. And whenever you roll a sock, you're giving it care and attention and love. And you're like, all right, this woman's <laughs> lost her mind. Um, it is one of those things, like I appreciate the aspect of that, of like appreciating your belongings. Um, and treating them well rather than being rough. But I'm like, socks are socks. <laughs> I literally buy those little ankle socks now, not because I care about my, <laughs> because of the appearances. I hate, like, I feel like I'm always running so late in the morning <laughs> that putting on socks, I, I identify as the thing that's holding me up every morning. That that's somehow that extra, like, what is that, 40 seconds to put on socks? Or all, I'm often running to the car with my shoes and socks in my hands. I'm like, I'll just do it on the way there. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> I, I have a real anger. I have anger issues with socks. That and mail. Those are my two big uh, weird uh, points of anger. I hate mail yeah. too. I don't want to pivot away from the alcohol thing, but um, but, but I want to talk about more about the because I think your book really focuses. I mean, you definitely talk a lot about the alcohol stuff. And I, I think part of your cutting back on everything was sort of like, you know, if alcohol is a vice, then so was shopping for you. And obviously, when you've gotten yourself $30,000 into debt, that's not a good spot to be. I mean, I think there's a lot of people in America that would almost say 30000 Like, ain't you You haven't gotten that bad yet. You know, um, I've met people with hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, between student loans and, and consumer debt. How soon after your sobriety did you think, hmm, I need to get I need to start cutting back on what I'm buying? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I, because even with the buying stuff, what I would say is that I, it, it doesn't even make sense to talk about why I did that ban unless we talk about the debt. So, like, I had that $30,000 yeah. debt. 
And I, um, because I was maxed out, I think I was, there's so much shame wrapped up in anything that goes wrong with money. Um, but I think being maxed out, it was especially so, especially because I knew that I, it was all me. Like no one made me go into that amount of debt. I didn't have student loans. It was flat out consumer debt, just like for years and years, spending more than I earned and only making the minimum payment or whatever. So I had so much shame around it that honestly, I I basically did something like a shopping dam, but I never called it anything. I, I was just so restrictive with myself to pay off my debt. Like I, I remember I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't even look at my haircut or I went and got like one haircut a year for like $30. I was so, so, so restrictive. I didn't really give myself any kind of fun money, just, you know, an entertainment budget. Um, everything that I was earning, I was putting towards debt because I just had this vision of wanting it gone. Like I just wanted to get down to zero. Um, and you what- set a goal to pay it off in two years? Well, at first I was kind of thinking three and then... Um, as I started making that progress, yes, I was like, oh my gosh, I could do this in two and a half and I could do this in probably just over two and then paying it off in just under two became a reality. And so I did that. But the problem with the way that I approached my debt repayment was, um, that it was so aggressive, both like financially, but also just the way I was treating myself. Like I was not nice to myself for those two years, you know, like it almost, punishing myself like I've just I've made all these mistakes and now I need to remedy them or like I need to deal with the consequences so I was super aggressive in my approach and now um like my sister just finished school and so is setting up sort of her first budget of working full-time but also repaying a bit of student loans and stuff and the way we're talking about it is so much different because I'm like no like have have like a set amount that you're going to put towards your debt every month, but have it be realistic and like within your budget. And also so that you can have some of a life, like, because if you're too restrictive, it's the same way if you did a really intense diet and then you just crashed and burned after. Like basically what happened is I finished paying off my debt and I started spending all of my money again. And so I didn't go back into debt but I, I just started spending everything. Like I would barely save anything. Um, I was constantly justifying why it was okay. And then just justifying it to myself, but also on my blog, because I used to share all my numbers on the blog. So at the beginning of the month, I would share my budget. And in it, it would have me saving 20% of my income. And then at the end of every month, I would update the numbers and be like, hey, guys, I might have saved like 4% of my income five, 10. Like I, I do think I hit 20% once, but in an entire year, um, the rest of the months I was. So were you saving money while paying off debt? Nope. nope. No. Okay. I, I had no, again, no balance. <laughs> so well, I, I actually, I actually think that's smart. I mean, to pay, I, 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 some people will disagree that you should get into some sort of savings habit while paying off debt. But generally speaking, your debt is going to be at an interest rate of over 10% and more likely 15 to 20%. Totally. So there's no way you're what, – what, it just doesn't make any sense to put money towards savings until you have paid. I think it's great to put something – maybe if it was like $10 a week or something, something that – you know, just so you feel like you're building up that habit, I think that would be good. But from well, a, just an accountant's perspective, it would be insane to, to save anything until you've paid off all your debt. 
Totally. And I would say, again, it's kind of what I love about personal finance being so personal is because I agree with that. And I would say that it's almost why I would instead argue for people like my sister right now of putting as much towards debt as is like reasonable, because then when she's free of her debt, if her budget has always felt reasonable, she should have no problem putting all that money into savings after. Right. So if she was putting yeah. like 500 a month towards debt, then realistically, she shouldn't feel like she's depriving herself. So once the debt is paid off, she should be able to save that $500 a month. If you have student debt that's at a low interest rate, then then pay that out, pay that off at the at the because a lot of times that's at such a low interest rate. Then I think I would say put money into savings, build that habit, build, you know, I mean, I will say anyone that's under the age of 30 and the younger you are. The more I can, I, the, as much as I'm sure you would feel the same way, the more I can stress to get your finances in order, to start saving, to pay off all your debt as soon as possible, to cut back on all the fun vacations and, you know, shopping and experience. You know, I feel like my entire 20s was, I'm making money for the first time in my life and I'm going to spend it on clothes and trips. And, yep. you know, they'll give you, you know, a credit card company will give you all the money in the world to hang yourself. And, um, it's so easy to get to thirty thousand dollars worth of debt. That, that wouldn't even be that hard to do. And I went through the thing of like I had enough money in the the bank to pay off my credit cards, and I would just let it float out of some yeah. sort of denial, you know, whatever. Well, that's so interesting. But yeah, so no, I'm debt free. I was debt free, and then yeah, just started spending everything. And what I would say. So to- you remain debt free ever since that initial pay payoff. Yeah, I mean now it's like slightly different because I'm self employed, and so my income is very irregular. Um, right. So it's just a little different. Like I might have months where I carry a couple thousand dollars on like my business credit card, but also knowing, you know, say two months from now, I'm getting like a $12,000 check for something or it, so it's like a little bit different where I'm at right now. But yes, like overall, like I'm not, I'm not racking up a ton of debt. And <laughs> It's conscious debt where you're saying this is an investment in my business. And I know that, you know, I need to go into a little debt here so that in a couple months from now, I'll have more money and, you know. Yeah. And I would love to get to the place where my cash flow is, is enough so that I don't ever have to do that. But where I'm at right now, it's just not possible. And so my, I don't know, I'm grateful that I have been able to make those mindset shifts where I've been like, okay, I don't love carrying say two or $3,000. However, I'm happy to pay the, you know, 20 or $30 of interest or whatever it is. Um, in order to keep, because I always have um, savings, and that helps me sleep at night more. So I would rather have, say, like ten thousand dollars in savings and be paying twenty or thirty in interest, rather than have, say, seven thousand in savings. Uh, it just—it's like again, like personal finance is so weird, but it's just I feel better with some cash, and so I'm I'm comfortable now with like a little bit of money on a credit card. Well, what's challenging is that so much of these. Uh, personal finance issues that if you if you don't address them from a psychological and emotional standpoint, you're only talking about half the equation because like what you're just saying makes a lot of sense. It probably makes more financial sense to pay off all your debt all the time and not save anything if you're in that, you know, if there's a disparity there. Mm-hmm. But the habit of savings and the reward of seeing that savings grow might psychologically be more important for the long-term habit of savings as opposed to paying off the $1,000 you racked up on, on corporate expenses this last month. 
Totally. And then part of it too is like, if the numbers were really drastic, like if I had $100,000 of debt, I probably wouldn't feel quite the same. Like I would probably be a little bit more back in the mindset of, okay, I need to put everything I can towards it. Um, But for where I'm at, it's like, I don't let myself even think about reaching high numbers of debt because that's, I just know that I don't ever want to go back there. That's uh, interesting. So, so, so basically you paid off your debt in a two-year period, and then the year of less was actually a period after that, or is the book sort yeah. of a hybrid account? No, I. so you know, I was debt-free for a year, but basically spending everything. And, and still, like I remember when I first paid off my debt and even working towards it, I'd sort of had all these thoughts of what life might be like after. And it, it, that wasn't it. Like I, I sort of thought I would be saving and I would be traveling a bit more and all of that. And instead I was just spending everything and working a lot. And this is at your job, not your government job, but the job after that, the kind of a startup company. Yeah. Yeah. I was with like a financial startup based in Toronto and yeah. So I, after a year of that, just being like, you know, I should have, I should have not only the tools like and the experience to know that I can take control of situations like this, but I'm making the money that I should be able to be saving some of this and I'm not. And overall, I'm just like not really happy with what I'm doing. So I just need some kind of goal. And I, because I think something I really realized when I was paying off my debt, also because in that time, in the two years I paid off my debt, um, that is when I also decided to quit drinking. And yeah. when, um I ended up uh, just sort of like, I don't know how you would word it otherwise, but like just sort of took control of my health like more and lost some weight and started training for my first half marathon. It was just like taking a lot better care of myself overall. And I really realized like I I am someone who I just like to work towards goals. Um, I I need some kind of a focus. I can't just be kind of la-di-da about it. And like saving 20% of my income, that was sort of the so-called goal, but it didn't have any kind of meaning or purpose really. So that's why I wasn't bothering with it. Like I wasn't focused on actually doing it because it didn't really have a meaning for me. Um, and so then I came to yeah, to like just not not buy stuff for a year and see if that helped. Well, I don't know if you, I mean, at least the for me living in Los Angeles, quitting drinking is probably saves $10,000 a year, which sounds crazy to say, but between the glasses of, you know, the, the 14 to $15 glasses of wine at restaurants to going out to the bars, and, you know, I, I was pretty blown away because I actually tracked my expenses for mm-hmm. <laughs> for the only purpose I wanted to see how much money I saved from not drinking one year yeah. to the next. And it wasn't a perfect analysis, but it was, I mean, but I, I it was something like $11,000 difference yeah. between one year to the next. Like I was probably a more frugal drinker than that. Like I would go to the places that had like cheap wine nights or whatever and be like, well, this is the night I drink eight glasses of wine um, because it would only cost me I don't know, 50 or 60 or $70 or something. Um, well, that's a lot of money. I mean, 50, oh, $50 no, no. for a night of drinking. It's crazy. Yeah. And if I, if I look back and because I don't have receipts of all this stuff, um, but I am pretty aware of like, you know, what I used to put on my credit cards. And I would say it was probably at least 6,000 a year that, and actually at one point I did the math on, what I had assumed drinking cost me from like the age of 13 to the age of 27. And I can't remember what that is. I, d- I just did it as a blog post. And it was like, obviously a very rough estimate, but 
I think I was probably in the $50,000 range that I assumed because I mean, yeah. when you're young, it was way cheaper. Um, but yeah, as I got older, it was obviously more. So. Well, it's funny. People get really upset about corporate greed and why are we giving all this money to wall street and this and that, but no one looks at just the ridiculous expense that we have that we just hand alcohol companies, you know, it was just like, Oh, $15 for a martini. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, it's often the way restaurants make money is the food is sold for a loss and the alcohol is where the profit is. Cause, cause I think psychologically people go, well, I mean, if I'm drinking, I'm sort of doing a bad thing. And so if I'm overpaying for it, well, that's, that's on me. And so you, they don't, you almost don't like blame the restaurant for the expensive bill you get at the end of the night. Oh, oh my gosh. The, like, again, the psychology of money is so fascinating because it's not just about like what we spend or save on like it's literally that that those little decisions because that's going to be different for everyone like someone might have no problem spending fifteen dollars on a drink but maybe they do have a problem buying five dollar coffees every day like, who, who knows it's just so interesting to me the way that our like the stories in our head constantly rationalize whatever works for us or doesn't work for us yeah, it's um well, you know, I actually like you had a similar experience. I, I hired a financial I went on a date, one of these sober sober <laughs> bumble dates. And the girl it was clear that we were not gonna be a match uh by about ten minutes of the conversation and she mentioned she's like, Yeah, you know, I actually um I had this woman that like caught, completely got my finances in order and it was like amazing. It was life changing. And I literally was like the whole date I I kept being like, Hey, uh do you have the email for that that woman that you mentioned earlier? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I'll send it to you. I'm like, oh yeah, could could you just like send it to me like right now? Because <laughs> I, I was like, I feel I don't think I don't think there's gonna be a second date, but I definitely would like to have the the information for that woman. <laughs> and so she, this woman who I spent a lot of money on, she got me did the whole thing tracking every single expense. She got me up on Quicken. Do you use Quicken at all or something a program like that? Uh, I use FreshBooks right now, but also Fresh my sister's an accountant, so that helps me now. Uh, <laughs> And what I was surprised by is that you said that you were you did really well in your accounting classes in college. Uh, I did, yeah, but um, I still think that that's different than personal finance, you know? Because it's the it's the emotional psychology psychological elements that are that you're not addressing, correct? Yeah, and like learning about business finances or just like basic accounting practices, like that's literally just dollars and cents, and then whatever the rules are. Um, and the rules don't really apply to personal finance, in, in, at least to start with, they don't. It is a weird thing because there's, I mean, you could study accounting, you could study economics, which is what my major was, but you don't have, like, I still think there's like, you know, I think the book that I keep talking about on the podcast is Ramit Sadie's I Will Teach You To Be Rich, yeah. which I think is the most boiled down, like, f personal finance for dummies book I've read. I think the title is a bit, a bit cheesy, you know, because it's sort of. Makes it sound like you're going to be like trying to drive a Mercedes at the end of your one year, but um, I could have come up with a more exciting sports car there, Ferrari. Um, but uh, I had never. I mean, I, I, I like you probably thought like I'm, I'm smart. I did, I did well in economics classes, and meanwhile, in my personal life, I wasn't opening bills, and I was, I had debt when I had more than enough money to pay it off, and just things that I would never, if I just, if I looked at my own life, like I was consulting for a business, I would be like, what are you guys doing here? Why? You know, because it's all this emotional stuff that just goes, well, I don't want to pay off that credit card. I want to feel like I have more money in the bank account. And it's like, well, that's insane. You're just handing money to Citibank every month for no reason. <laughs> it's, um, 
Oh gosh. Yeah. I just lost my train of thought on that, but yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 I probably just blew your mind. That's, that's okay. <laughs> um, so what do you think? I mean, so this has been a big change for me is that I now I, I have an automatic withdrawal from, uh, from my checking to my savings when I get paid that, uh, well, I don't even do that. I just do an auto, a repeat payment now every two weeks around when I get paid because mm-hmm. I'm a freelancer as well. Mm-hmm. And that forces me to save. I mean, it's just like the money's out of my account and yes, could I go to the savings account? And I also have the savings account is my Vanguard fund. So it's like a little harder to like liquidate yeah. and such. Yeah. Um, I think I'd highly recommend that people don't have a savings account that's at the same bank as your checking account. Yeah. And then, um, and there's plenty of free ones out there like Ally Bank or there's a ton. There's a ton of online only banks or Vanguard, which I recommend, you know, mutual funds. But, um, but just getting the, getting your savings out of your bank account as fast as possible. And then what's left over is what you can spend in your personal life, you know, after expenses. I think I could not recommend it highly enough. I agree. I also think it's sort of, if I, well, if I really think about this, I probably apply this to all different areas of my life is that even though it's uncomfortable, I think when we create more frictions, we actually take away a lot of the convenience that has been laid out for us. Like if we can create a little more friction, so it's, um, like you said, either more difficult to access your money, or it's more difficult to spend, um, like, so having bank accounts outside of your regular daily banking, like having savings elsewhere, um, removing or not saving your credit card information anywhere so that, that there is no impulse buy, like you have to remember your credit card, um, stuff like that. Like You're hitting more- a, sensitive, a sensitive area for this <laughs> Amazon one-click buyer over here. I'm so sorry. Um, I am one of the weird people who has still never signed up for Amazon Prime to show you how little I use Amazon. I will say that if I face my demons right now, the fact that I'll buy a big pen on Amazon, I, I basically go like, why would I write down buy pens when I can just press one click? And it right. shows up in a box 24 hours later. Right. <laughs> but so I think like if you create a little more friction in all areas of life, it just it forces you to be more intentional as a whole. Like, what do you actually want to be doing? If it's not as easily accessible, would you do the thing that you're maybe impulsively thinking of doing or not? So, but yeah, I think starting with having savings elsewhere is massive for our finances. Creating friction is smart though. I mean, I think you're right. Like getting, probably getting off of Amazon one click, getting into the habit of buying everything, like having to punch in the, all those numbers, which to me, I'm a very impatient person. I'm, I'm ADD. I'm wired just to be kind of like, you know, like entering my credit card information is like what I would be doing if I died and went to hell. Um, it, it feels like very tedious. So, but the convenience of Amazon works great for Amazon. And, and like, I think you talked about sales, you know, the, the effect of like, oh my God, 40% off. I'll never find this again. And, and you had a really interesting point in your book where you said, I'm saving so much more money by not buying on sale because I'm not buying crap I don't need. And you'd be better off buying something you really do need down the road at full price than knee-jerk reacting to, oh my God, that backpack I want is now $30 off. I I better buy it now. Like, you know, or buying things that you might need in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And like, there's a couple of points on that. Like, for starters, yeah, it'll, it'll prevent probably a lot of impulse purchases of stuff you actually don't 
probably need or would ever even use. Um, but because sales just do that, they they create a scarcity mindset that makes you think it's now or never. But the other thing about sales that obviously they're never going to promote this is that they're cyclical. Like sales come around again all the time. I think on average, it's like you'll see, say like for something like deodorant or toothpaste, you see it at this ridiculously low price. On average, I think you'll see it at that price again, like in the next 45 days. So yeah, like it, it, it creates this now or never, but you, you probably actually will see it on sale again one day. Um, and it is just better to buy it when you, when you actually need it. Because often, like just just buying things because they're on sale would mean we could shop all day every day. Because I feel like the entire world, other than maybe like Apple, like I think the whole world is on sale all the time. So. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think if you kind of because what's happening is when you buy on sale, you're getting addicted to a cycle of trigger reward, right? The trigger is the sale. Mm-hmm. The reward is like, or I, don't, I may not be using the right terminology there, but it's like cue response, maybe whatever you want to call, it, but mm-hmm. the and and then you're just like your advice about removing yourself from all the email lists of all the companies unfollow all the brands on Instagram on Facebook i'll say instagram is damn effective at getting me to at least get real close to adding some i'm pretty good at resi- i don't have a lot of shopaholic kind of tendencies i'm pretty good at being pretty thrifty i buy a lot of things on ebay used that i otherwise might buy new but you know instagram is a multi billion dollar company uh-huh. That's not because they're not selling stuff. It's because those ads work really, really well. And if you're on Instagram, you're probably going to be buying stuff. Well, and the other thing too, because of that is, um, like, I think most people know this now, but Instagram listens to you. So like, if you give it access to your microphone, it actually does listen to conversations that you have. So you can test it out. Like if we were to talk about something specific right now, I guarantee you would see an ad for it, like in the next 48 hours on Instagram. Even if I'm not in the Instagram app? Yep. Yep. I have- How does that, that seems like full-blown conspiracy talk right now i i totally get it but uh, first of all if you go what what, what could we talk about right now that we think will be we haven't said in the last and it should be a consumer product so what can we talk about that would be specific um i don't know something i never have thought about buying i'll talk about some a woman's product you talk about a men's product okay i assume that what's a specific woman's product i could talk about that i that, that would be on an instagram um things you see on instagram I would say, actually, here is one that I did do. I was visiting a friend in Minneapolis. Um, you might actually know him, maybe not yet, but Anthony Angaro, who writes Break the Twitch. I yes, I, I, I don't know him, but I know, I know of the, the website. Cool. So I was visiting him in Minneapolis in August, and we did this test while driving around. I told him something, I can't remember what they're called, Kate Hudson's athletic gear. I think it's called like Fabletics or something like that. Somehow we saw some athletic gear. So I was like, okay, I've definitely seen ads for that before, like, you know, months and months <laughs> ago. So I was like, Fabletics. And then um, I had to. All right. Find- so my, mine will be Fabletics. Yep. I'm going to talk about, I'm, I have my, I have, in, I'm going to give Instagram a little, make it easier. I have the app open. I didn't press anything. I'm just saying the word Fabletics, athleisure. Um, <laughs> what else could I say? Uh, I really yep. want a good sports bra. Leggings, workout gear. It may not totally work because they may filter out men just for X because they don't want to pay for clicks that are not going to go through. Maybe. My recommendation for you would be the One Blade. That's what's up on my Instagram right now. It's an award-winning pivoting head, single-edge performance razor, (laughs) (laughs) which I actually will advocate. I'm a huge fan of the single razor razor, uh, old school 
double-sided razors from like Israel. Um, okay, so what's it called? The, I don't one, know. the one blade? It's called the one blade. The one blade men's razor. I love when people say award winning when there's no mention of who the who they won the award from. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like it's like, I always joke about best pizza in Los Angeles. Just every other, every like every five blocks, it'll be a sign best voted best pizza in Los Angeles. No attri- oh. no attributed source. Okay, so we need to now report back to each other. Like say this even once more today. Say your words. I'll say mine. And if in the next couple of days you see an ad for that, you have to let me know. Yeah, um, avoid I'm, typing in your Google. I'm trying to think if there's anything male related I should I should type in as well, just because I feel like there might be a filter to prevent accidental. Uh, I'm trying to think if I know there's anything I. How about I'm gonna say hiking boots as well. Hiking boots. That? Timberland hiking boots. Okay. That's something I have not been searching for at all. Oh, I will say camping gear because I don't need it right now, but I'll probably look for some next summer. Some executive from Instagram is like scrambling. Like, <laughs> Do not let them. <laughs> We can't let the bag out. That seems shocking. I, I've heard rumblings of this microphone listening. I feel like if this was true, would people just be outraged? Uh, I mean, you would think so. I'm not questioning whether or not you're, oh. you're – I just think – I'm like, you're probably right. I just like, how is this allowed? I don't know. But oh, but the other one that um, was a funny example a friend gave me was he said, yeah, I always see ads for condoms and – Something else. And he was like, but I watch a lot of porn on my phone. <laughs> so I was like, that is hilarious. Like, those are the ads he sees on Instagram based on what his, technically the sounds that are coming out of his phone. Um, <laughs> oh, I see. Right? Like, so it's like the words are coming out. Like, this guy's having a lot of sex. <laughs> we better make sure he's ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah. That's not an ad you want to have. Like, I would not want. Now, if random condom ads are going to come up on my phone and my girlfriend happens to be looking over my shoulder, it's going to be, we're going to have a, it's going to be bad. I'm going to have to go to this recording right now to say, that's how it happened. <laughs> I'm going to blame you. <laughs> well, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, um, I don't know. Like, I think, I'm sure there's some conspiracy still around it, but it's just happened too often for it to not be true. So I'll have friends who say things like, oh, Instagram got me. Like I kept thinking about buying this thing and then I saw it on Instagram. So I just did it. And I'm like, yeah, but were you talking about it all the time? Were you engaging with the ads at all? Um, even just like hovering over the ad for too long, like rather than scrolling. Right well, that's, that's what I think is happening is like whenever you stop and look too long, it knows. Yeah, they gotcha. But I will say, so when I saw Anthony, I had just gotten back from a trip to the UK, and even that, just being in the UK, my phone started making all of my ads related to the UK, and I still have it sometimes if I'm talking about the UK a lot, because I'm going to go back next year, and so if I'm talking about it a lot, all my ads switch, and so it'll show me dollars in pounds. It will show me companies I've never heard of, and I'm like, what is this stuff? And it's all stuff that's based there. And I ne- like I don't know these websites. I don't know anything. I would never have searched for any of these things in my life. So I do. And you don't think you you're typing about like because I think if you type anything into Gmail, you type anything into your Google browser or Facebook, like then it's then it's free game. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying at least I kind of aware of that being the 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 Machiavellian deal that we have with the devil. But totally. But Fabletics UK came up is what I will say. So like the next day I was at the airport and I sent Anthony a screenshot of my phone and it was Fabletics UK. I'm like, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they know. <laughs> um, well, I, 
I'm I'm, I'm friends with uh, Kate Hudson's sister, so maybe I can get you some free Fabletic. <laughs> but I'm not friends with this. Wait, I'm friends with her brother, not her sister. I don't know if she. I don't think she has a sister. Um, we're kind of at the end here. Yeah. I think it would be interesting to talk. There's the final chapter of your book. If people buy your book. And you, I think what it might even be smart for people to do is to skip to the final chapter just to kind of review your, like, your kind of eight, you sort of have a list of, like, eight tenets of, like, how to, uh, how to declutter. I think it'd be good to scan that list and then read the book. Because I think then, because I think your book actually came at a very useful time for me. It was when my girlfriend just moved into my apartment. So I have all of her stuff, all of our stuff. And, you know, just, like, mm. by sheer, we have too much stuff to fit in one apartment. So we were having some very hard discussions about how many pots and pans you need, how many, you know, and uh, your book was literally like guiding me through of like, I was like, I can throw away my third strainer and I can, you know, um, I don't need seven Allen wrenches, but it's hard. I mean, you, I, I, I had seven Allen wrenches all almost identical. Wow. I still kept three. I, so like what's going on there? Like if you lose something, you should just buy it again. I, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of work to be done in this department for everyone, but I think your book, um, is there any like kind of quick starter tips other than buy your book like that you'd recommend? Like, is there one thing that someone should do to just start this process of decluttering? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things for starters in my mind. I'm like, it's not a decluttering book. Like, yes, I got rid of a bunch of stuff, but even in talking about it, the the only goal really was to sort of show the emotional aspect of why I had bought a bunch of those things and that it's it's hard to let go of, you know, the person that you hoped maybe would use some of them. So, because I don't... Really- that was a tough chapter because I, I definitely related to that. You know, when you're, you're like, I'm not going to wear this power suit or I'm not going to... You know, when you buy these really aspirational, like, I'm going to change my life, you know, for me, it's exercise equipment. Mm-hmm. I'll buy like a kettlebell. And then like two years later, like, yeah, I didn't really get into swinging that every morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, and then it's funny because I had a great conversation where someone sort of challenged me on it being like, yeah, but that's like saying people shouldn't buy things that are, are going to make them better. I'm like, no, it's about learning how to buy those things when you're actually going to use them. So like not buying it being like, I'm going to be the person who does that one day. But instead, getting to the place where you're like, okay, like literally today, I'm going to start this thing and I need this to help me with it. That is fine. It's like now, like I buy books, but I buy a book when I am going to read it. So I don't buy it being like, that might be a really great book to read in February. (laughs) But I used to do that all the time. But when you like when you change that wording and say it out loud, that sounds ridiculous. Like I might buy that. I might buy this thing that I... I'm going to buy this thing I might use in like six months from now. It's just about learning how to not buy those things anymore. Yeah, I ju- I always justify things like books, exercise equipment, anything productivity related. Uh, I've, on my previous podcast, I talked about task lists. I've I probably purchased every single task list one can buy that no. isn't free for the iPhone because I believe it's like well. Because in my mind, I'm like, well, e- even if this is a waste of three dollars, like just by the sheer chance it could add to my productivity, well, then I'll make my money back on being more productive. So that's how I sort of justify to myself. But it becomes, it really does become a sort of a consumer cycle addiction. And so often you're like, wait, why? Why isn't a piece of paper just good enough to write down my task list? Or why can't I just use like, there's a notebook somewhere in my house. Why don't I just start using that? And like that should be good enough. Totally. It's um, 
Yeah, I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff, but Chris Bailey writes about productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and he you don't know Chris Bailey. Okay, he's Canadian, but he just had a um, his second book came out recently. It's called Hyperfocus, and what's funny about it, mm. is even when you look at the cover, it looks super intense and. It, it just it isn't actually reflective i feel of like what is in the material inside of it because what he talks mostly about is attention and mindfulness and learning just how to only pay attention to like one or two things at a time like that's all we can do um but that book i think helped a lot with my mindset around productivity because i'm like oh like it actually has nothing to do with getting more stuff done it's it's about like getting sort of the right stuff done and you can, you don't need any special tools for that. It's just about focusing your attention more than anything else. But anyways, that's- well, there's a book that I, I talk about a lot on the podcast. It sounds similar topic as Cal Newport's deep, Newport. deep work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I yeah. also thought was for me, a g- kind of a game changer. Deep work was absolutely a game changer. Um, which actually, cause you had said maybe like, we don't have to talk about quitting blogging, but I would say some of the, thoughts I have had this past year um, were... Because you had run, you had a blog that you were posting on how often? Um, it changed over time. Like when I first started, I was doing it a couple times a week and then it was weekly. And then, you know, towards the end, it was maybe once a month or so. But I... And how, how big would that readership be, do you think? Um, probably at its peak... You know, I on on a whole, I would say I averaged about like sixty to eighty thousand unique visitors a month. Um, that's huge, isn't it? I mean, that's a uh, really successful blog. Yeah, I would for sure like a successful blog. It's not huge. I mean, like I know people who have like a million readers a month. Um, so it's nothing like that. It's not one of the like top blogs by any means. But certainly, as far as blogging goes, like yeah, there was a sizable readership there. Um, but it was interesting, like something in the past couple of years has really switched for me. And I realized that trying to blog weekly, even if I wasn't quite doing it, I always had that feeling inside of me, like, oh, I should be blogging, I should be publishing. And um, it actually was keeping me in a short term mindset, especially with personal blogging, because you're writing about your life. And so it's like, sometimes I would share thoughts or things that I was just finding interesting. But when you're sharing your personal life, I don't know, like I just really realized like I I could never think big picture of what the blog was going to do or just even what I was going to do because it, like I was just living week to week sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, just, that's just how it felt. Like I always felt like I was just focused on the next blog post um, and it just didn't feel good. Like I, I think one of the coolest lessons that I took from being able to write a book was that I do better when I can like really sink my teeth into one thing and like I just enjoy the process more I enjoy the outcome more like the the actual product more um and yeah so deep work actually was something that helped me kind of come to that or at least build on that kind of aspect of it yeah, it's well. It's interesting to hear that we have that that similar experience there. The is there a book that you're working on now, or what, give me an example? So is blogging completely on ice, or are or do you just want to give like it was more like telling your fans, don't expect me to post here, and then maybe I will if I want to, but 
Yeah, I mean, for the moment, I, I don't think I'll go back to it. Um, I have been doing a newsletter, um, which I'll end though at the end of November this year and then kind of reassess for 2019. So I have been doing a newsletter, which has been cool. It's been cool to sort of shift my focus. Like I've been taking it on as sort of like a interesting writing challenge. So I'm not sharing my personal life and, and I'm instead sharing kind of ideas that I have or observations that I'm making. And so it's been neat. But again, it I'm finding it is keeping me in that short term mindset. And so my thought is, like, I obviously love writing, but the like weekly, it's, it's too much for me. Um, and just because I like to go deeper, like, I, I don't want to just give people an update on like what I ate or something <laughs> like, you know, I want right. to, I want to write about something that I'm really, like, well, it's challenging because every single book you'll read about how to have a successful blog, YouTube podcast will say it has to be weekly. It has to be. And, and I don't know if there's an, a, an article, I'll have to find it about how YouTubers are kind of like all losing their minds because okay. if you're a weekly YouTuber and you go on vacation and you don't post that week, the algorithms at YouTube highly punish those because it, it almost flags you as like, oh, this is probably <laughs> this is probably a YouTube account that's no longer going to be active ever again and, and knocks it, it down off the metrics. It's wild. And that there's a big push on YouTube to, to like have a more forgiving algorithm because people feel like if they don't post every single day or they don't hold to the previous rhythm – that they're going to lose huge chunks of their audience. And a lot of these people are living off YouTube as their primary and only income. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, completely mirroring what you're talking about, this feeling like I got to post again, I got to post again. And and even if I don't have anything to post about, it, I'll just post something. And I, I knew going into this that I want to do something weekly because I just know that for myself, if I, if I, I actually like the, like the rhythm of like, all right, I know I have to do this every week. I'm going to do it once a week and that's it. Cause I know that I'm more likely to maybe not, I, I think it's it's just more for like evening out the workflow. Uh -huh. um, so it doesn't feel like a weekly obligation. It's something I enjoy doing each week. But if I had to do this three times a week, I'd be uh, I, I would it would be a nightmare. And I I think for Twitter and Instagram, I you know I'm not really a stand up comedian anymore. I, I did I did it for a long time, and I felt this need like oh I have to have a Twitter account and I have to have a, I should post something funny every day on Instagram, and uh, that feeling is the worst feeling in the world when you feel like you're posting something just to post something. Uh -huh. and you don't, I'm sure you feel like, like this is when I, with Instagram, I still feel this. I'll be out with my girlfriend and I'll see something cool and I'll be like, I'm not posting it because I, I'm posting it because I want to post something funny or cool or silly as opposed to like, it's important. And, and, um, I, so I, I, that's how I feel like I could relate a little bit to your blogging, I guess. Um, yeah. Feeling. I, I mean, it's sort of something I've been also talking about a lot this year is just this like for creators is the idea of creating in the space that you're consuming. So like how, like where do you consume most of your information or like, what are the things you genuinely enjoy consuming on like a weekly basis? Uh, for me, it's podcast. Second is I, uh, to me, a big chain game changer for me. It could be for the worse. It could be for the better, but uh, the uh, paying for the YouTube premium, Okay. It turns YouTube into a podcaster, mean, basically meaning that once you turn your iPhone off, the audio will still play. And so I've been able to like find college lecturers and find, I think you talked about this too, that you started watching more YouTube videos uh -huh. and podcasts in your year of less and getting rid of TV. And one thing I think I'm going to experiment with more is canceling Netflix and only like having it on for like, you know, just like 
cancel like all my streaming services and then just like I'm going to do a month of Netflix or I'm going to do a month of Hulu because like to have them all all the time like I don't really need to have all them going all the time uh you know I don't feel ever really feel the need to watch like a show as it's on the air unless it's like something like Game of Thrones oh my god I I literally just wrote about that in the newsletter I sent out today Oh, really? Yeah, like all year this year, I've been experimenting with canceling Netflix and then resubscribing, like either when I know a specific show is back or I know like I have time to watch more TV. It's the only one I have anyways. And so sometimes it's like I'll only go without it per se for a couple of weeks. But again, it actually goes back to that idea of like creating a bit of friction. Like if you didn't have access to this stuff, what would you do instead? Um, and it's very easy to get like to restart your membership. It's literally like two clicks. <laughs> well, they make it. They'll make it plenty easy. No, no worries. About oh that. yeah, and they constantly send you emails, and they're like, "Hey, if you want to come back, there's like new movies out that you might like based on everything else you've watched." <laughs> but it's it's been like a really interesting experiment I have found this year. You know, I've a when I have Netflix, like I'm really enjoying the few shows that I end up watching whereas before I think because it was always available I would just kind of turn it on and like either mindlessly watch or just have it as background noise or something but now I'm like okay I've got Netflix for a month cool like on Saturday I'm totally gonna have a day where I just like binge watch this new show and like it's like a clear just that is what I'm doing for that day and it's gonna be great um because it's like an intention well the constant optimization to get you to watch the next episode the auto like they don't even do the the countdown anymore you're just watching like i start watching the show called the crown mm-hmm. like wait a minute is this the is this the second episode already there's like no gap anymore they're just like the like they kind of like truncate the tr- the credits you're just like almost watching the next episode um and then they they seem to have gone like make it very difficult to resume watching a show because i think they want you to like get like they, they actually rather you just constantly click on new shows so that you have like 10 shows that you kind of need to finish watching so that you're that much less likely to ever cancel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say probably a little bit less so in Canada. We don't get quite the um, number of shows that you guys do. Like we still have way too much than I could ever watch in my lifetime. But I'll just be down in the States. And when you look at Netflix, when you're in other countries, it will show you all the shows that they have. I'm like, damn, you guys have really good shit. And we don't. <laughs> well, you should get yourself, you, if you get yourself a VPN. I know, I know. You can, I, know yeah. like, I know that's legal. But, uh, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think you're going to get thrown in prison for it. No, it's like a big crackdown though in Canada on them right now. So I'm just like, I'm like, whatever, I'll just continue with the friction. I just will pretend I don't have access to it. And that's fine. So you're done with blogging, you're doing a weekly newsletter, which is about talking about what you're observing in the world, but not talking about it from your own personal perspective. And that's sort of your creative outlet. And then what are you doing? Do you have a day job? What like what kind of uh, what are you doing for like work work? Or is that is this kind of your job still? It is because I'm, um, I feel like every year that I've been self employed, it's been like three and a half years now, every year has been really different, like in terms of looking at when I get to the end of the year and you look at the breakdown of where your money came from, like it's been a, just the percentages change drastically. But um, like last year I kind of wasn't freelancing this year. I've picked up more freelance just to make more money. So yeah. So like some freelance writing, um, the book, I haven't gotten them yet, but um, the bonus of sort of being a smaller blogger when I got my book deal and uh, not, 
not knowing that the book would sell very well is that um, I got a smaller advance that I've out earned. So I will now earn royalties on the book for life, which is pretty cool. That's great. That's pretty rare, actually, for an author to make more than their advance. Yeah. But I'm like, <laughs> again, I think the, I don't know, it's been like a just a very, like, people seem to want to seek out like really big advances. And I think for your ego, there's probably really something in that. But actually being able to accept something smaller and like be okay with it. And then to see that, yeah, like there's actually an ad- advantage of it, which is that not only could you out earn it, but that can actually continue to help you. So like the fact that I've out earned my advance can help me get another book deal one day, whereas people who never out earn their advances, it can be harder to get other book deals. And do you have another book in the works? Yeah, I'm kind of like, I have an idea and I'm working on a proposal right now. Um, So my agent is on maternity leave right now, but she's back in January. And the thought is like, if I can get the proposal done by the end of this year, then she'll be able to pitch it around and kind of see what happens. So we will see. Sounds very similar to the film business. Yeah, right. (laughs) And there's like two windows, which everyone works, which is like January, February, and then like for like two weeks for like September and October. And then everyone's got other things. Everyone's on vacation. uh, Otherwise there are definitely, yeah. My agent would probably describe it exactly like that. Like she'll definitely say that there are windows where you don't bother. Um, But January would be a great time for me to have the draft done. So that's the plan. (laughs) Uh, And then I, I actually am um, outlining a podcast that I'm going to start myself. I had a podcast that I did with a girlfriend for two and a half years and, we wrapped that up um, in the spring, and but I'm really missing that. And also, um, I'm feeling a need to sort of fill a void that I'm feeling in in podcasting. So I'm hoping to launch it in January, but I also don't want to say it in case that's a little too ambitious. But well, we'll hold you to it. Okay, uh, look great. for that in January. <laughs> um, well, no, I think. Well, I will say this: that you are a wonderful podcast guest, and you have a, a great speaking voice. So, uh, I I actually been thinking during this, I was like, oh, why doesn't she do a podcast? So, mm. I think that's a great idea. Thank and you. And I think people would love to hear more from you. Um, I feel like we've had we're already like well past <laughs> an hour and a half here. So, um, I feel like I have to let you go. Yeah, but no ma- problem. Let's, uh, if we find a topic to talk about next, or when you launch your podcast, uh, let's. Let's resume the conversation. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And uh, I know it's sort of early feedback for you, but I'm really enjoying the uh, the show so far as as you've done oh. it. So there you go. You're, so you're the listener. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I saw that one comment on on the on the show notes. So <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. I have tens and tens of of listeners out there. It's a growing audience. <laughs> no, I think I think <laughs> it's lot, really Kate. neat. I think it's really great. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I'd love to have you back on. So let's, uh, let's, we'll set that something up in the new year once you have that, that book proposal finished and your, your, your highly successful new podcast is up. Oh, okay. Sounds great. Good goal. And, and then I'll just do one more plug for your book. So I think people out there would really benefit from reading it. It's called The Year of Less. It's a, it's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. You can find it on all the major. Is, is there one place that it's better to buy it than another? Uh, I, don't I hate to I hate to plug Amazon after we just talked about all the dangers of Amazon. Oh no, no! I mean, like I always say, whatever uh, just feels best for people. Like some people love supporting local independent bookshops. Some people Amazon because it is more affordable. That's better for their budgets. Some people that means going to the library. So I'm I'm pretty happy with all of it. Well, I'm a fan of Audible, so that's how yeah. I, I consume the book. 
I didn't oh, get to enjoy your beautiful album art, though. Yeah, I think you have a, a great book cover. Oh, so, thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Kate. Thank you I so much. I appreciate it, and uh, have an awesome week. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Hey, guys, if you're liking the podcast and want to help us out, just a quick reminder to go to iTunes, leave us a review, leave a comment, suggest some new people we should have on the show, topics you want us to discuss. And you can also do the same on Twitter. You can hit me up at, at Jeff Grace. And otherwise, I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.